If you have a Bible, please turn to John 18. And what I want to do is this. I'm going to read uh, John 18 and John 19, parts of both chapters uh, that will not be on the screen. However best you listen to story, do that. If it's just uh, opening your eyes, keeping your eyes closed, whatever. If it's following along, follow along on your Bible, with your Bible. Um, if it's not, just listen. I want you to listen to this narrative being taught. Today we get to the cross narrative. Um, but I, I would say what leads up and how John tells the story leading up to the cross is very, very important. So a little backstory here before we get started. Jesus is arrested in, um, in the garden. He's betrayed by Judas to be arrested, betrayed with a kiss. He's denied by Peter three times, the rooster crows. Um, and here he's about to stand in front of Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor who's in charge over Jerusalem, who represents Caesar's kingdom, the, king, the Roman Empire. Okay, so that's the context. Jesus is arrested. He knows, he's been telling us for a while that he's going to be arrested. He's telling his disciples, getting them ready. I'm going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to leave you. And, and with my leaving, I will send the Spirit. And so this is now the leaving part. But the leaving is really, really hard for Jesus because the leaving uh, involves um, being betrayed by Judas, one of his followers, being denied by Peter, everyone scattering and running, him being in front of the, uh, Ju the Jewish high priests and then condemned to death and then brought before Pilate because the Jewish high priests don't have authority to kill Jesus. It goes to Rome because Rome rules. And they're like, we don't have authority to kill Jesus. Rome, will you kill Jesus? And so this is where we pick up in verse 28. Verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, um, who is the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. Now it was early in the morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they, the Jewish people, the, the Jewish high priests um, or the Jewish high council, did not enter into the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. They didn't want to become unclean and going into, um, into Pilate's home. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? This man is Jesus. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would, have, would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe 
and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate pointed to him and said, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law. And according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you, free, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place, uh, at, at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests and the Jewish pro Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that, this, that he claimed, this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures that are able to capture in, in detail, narrative, emotion, what was going on at like the centerpiece of history. And we ask God that you would give us faith to hear and eyes to see what's going on. And that you would appropriate it to our own lives, that you would make it impactful um, to, our, to our lives individually and corporately as a body of Christ. Um, that those in here that, that do not believe would be given faith to believe. Those of us that believe, God, that we would further still walk with you, that we would grow in grace and knowledge. Um, and so we just submit our, this time to you and ask God as we sit under the authority of your word that you would teach us. We love you. I pray, God, just submitting all of my capacities to you that you would anoint me. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So what I just read today um, is the gospel. This is the gospel. If there is ever a gospel presentation, ever given, anywhere, the cross is mentioned. If it's not mentioned, that's scary. But the gospel is a lot bigger than this story. 
It's a lot bigger than Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins is part of the gospel and a very important part of the gospel, but it's not the full story. However, we do see the full story in miniature here. The way John writes about the arrest and the trial of Jesus is not just filler for how the crucifixion took place. It wasn't like, okay, Jesus was crucified, but let me just tell you how real quick so you kind of know what's going on. The cross of Christ um, wasn't told in a way that just gives us information on how it was done, like historical data. If you read this carefully, and I tried to when we were reading it together, it's the why of the cross. The way that John tells his story leading up to the actual crucifixion of Jesus is the why of the cross. Like, why did Jesus die? What was being accomplished in Jesus' death? Where was God in this whole thing? Who, who crucified Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's told throughout this narrative in the trial of Jesus. And all of it's answered in the story here. To borrow from one of my favorite writers, authors, Frederick Buechner, he says the gospel is tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. And it is all of those things. The gospel, as it's told here in John, is tragedy, it's comedy, and it's fairy tale. And I wish to use that as a loose outline today as we go through our text. So here, what we'll do is we'll kind of just go through it down the line. I want you to grapple with what's going on in the way John is telling this story. Pilate was the Roman governor of the province of Judea. And Jerusalem, where this is taking place, being the Jewish heart of the country, um, he spent a lot of time there in Jerusalem, especially around Passover, when the city was filled with people. It was always tense um, under Roman rule in Jerusalem, filled with, when Jerusalem swole with people, when it filled with people. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, it shows this like mob mentality really well, right? Um, where the mob is fickle, the mob um, uh, will, will worship someone or not, uh, that whole thumbs up, thumbs down thing. Um, it only took one person to lead a mob or lead an uprising. And it got the whole city into it. And so Rome was always really afraid, always a lookout for people who would, who would rally the mob together and like start a, 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 like an uprising, like Barabbas did. You guys remember Barabbas? He started an uprising. That Rome was always careful about who are those people that might start an uprising? Who might get the mob on their side and go against Rome? One such threat showed up on Pilate's door one early morning. Knock on the door. And Pilate walks out and he tells the Jewish leaders to judge this man that they brought to him by their own courts. But they don't want justice. They want to crucify. They want him executed. Like, we think this man, there's enough charge against this man to have him executed. So we don't have the power to execute. Only you have the power to execute. And the power to execute criminals is one of the most closely guarded functions of the local Roman governors. So Pilate held this close to his chest. So Jesus and Pilate meet. And that's what we're reading about. So the first meeting they have. Pilate calls Jesus into his palace and says, come here. And he says this in verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 33. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, what you have to remember here throughout this entire narrative, you have to keep in mind that throughout this whole dialogue, kingship is the issue. Kingship, kingdom, ruling, power, authority is in view this whole time between Pilate and Jesus. And so Pilate just simply asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now Jesus doesn't answer directly. He says this, is that your own idea? Is that what you're saying? Who, who came up with that? Did you, are you talking to someone else? That's what they told you? Or did you come up to that, with that yourself? Are you claiming 
here that I am the king of the Jews? So what, what's going on is Pilate was asking him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, if, if, if the, the question was this, are you claiming, Jesus, are you claiming to be a king that's challenging Rome? The answer is no, right? The answer is no. That's not what Jesus is doing. But if Pilate was asking more of a Jewish question, are you the messianic king of Israel? The answer would be yes. And what's interesting is the way that John is telling the story. If Jesus is the king of the Jews, then Jesus, according to Psalm 2, is the king of the world. So what does Pilate mean by this question? What do you mean, am I a king? This is his question, and Jesus wants to know, what do you mean, am I a king? And then Pilate answers back, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people. I didn't, I didn't do this. I don't really want to get involved in your religious theological disputes. They brought you to me, okay? The chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Pilate wants to get to the bottom of what's going on. And Pilate must uncover what kind of king Jesus is. Is this king, Jesus, claiming to be a threat to Roman rule? And so he starts to ask him plainly, what have you done? And then Jesus here says... My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Now, if you remember right before this, Peter actually tried to prevent Jesus being arrested. Peter had a sword, and when Jesus was being arrested, he pulled out the sword, and he cut off the high um, priest's servant's ear. Okay? So actually, he was, it was probably a short sword, like a hobbit sword. And... Um, and he went for, uh, Malchus is his name, the high priest service, uh, servant's name was Malchus. He went for his throat, and Malchus probably moved away, and he chopped off his ear. And then Jesus said, stop, put the sword away. This is not how my kingdom is going to come. Jesus' kingdom was actually being brought into the world through this event of the cross. And my kingdom does not come like this with your swords. Put down your swords. And he picks up Malchus's ear, and he puts it back on. That's insane. Okay? He puts it back on. And then so Jesus tells Pilate pretty plainly, he goes, you can actually ask them. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. My servants would fight to prevent this. My servants would actually come up against you. The kingdom of God is inaugurated and established by Jesus here. And it's certainly for this world. It's for Rome. It's for Israel. It's for the world. But it's not from this world. It's from another place. The kingdom of God has its origin, hope, and goal from above, from heaven, from God. The kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about here is clashing with the kingdom of the world. And it's in living color. And this is what's so beautiful about John's writing. It's like the most powerful kingdom at that time, Rome, was clashing and coming up against the kingdom of God. The most powerful kingdom in the world, face to face with the kingdom of God. And soon Jesus would be crowned king of the world. The kingdom of God is God's gift to the world. The kingdom of God is one of love. It's where love for power no longer rules, but the power of love rules. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is God's saving act. This, this happening here, this with the cross happening here, all before him, is God's not, it's not the love of power, but the power of love. If Jesus' kingdom were a regular sort of kingdom, the kind that grows all too easily in this world today, it grows all too easily in America, it grows all too easily in this town, 
if Jesus' kingdom were of the regular sort, then Jesus' followers would be taking up arms. They would fight. Now, the difference between the kingdoms is remarkable. The kingdoms of this world make their way by fighting, by aggression, by winning, by beating out the competitor, by killing those who get in its way on its rise to the top. That's what Rome has always done. That's what the kingdom of the man, this is the kingdom of the world has always done. But the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in makes its way differently and with a different weapon. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, uses a different weapon. And that weapon is truth. Jesus says, truth. And I love Pilate's response. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And I, I, think, I think this is kind of comical. Pilate goes, you are a king then. Like, my kingdom is not of this world. Aha, you are a king. That's what, that's what Pilate says. I caught you. So you're telling me you're a king. That's what he's saying. So Jesus answered and said, you say I'm a king. So Jesus' response was like, king is your word, not my word. You started it, not me. Like, you're the one that asked me if I was a king of the Jews. So that you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born into the world, to testify to the truth. So the kingdom that Jesus brings in is one of truth. Now, we have to get this straight. Jesus isn't saying that his kingdom is a kingdom that tells the truth or a kingdom that's honest. Though that is part of it. That is true. Okay? He's not saying my kingdom rules by telling the truth, by honesty. That is part of it. But this is more of a theological term. Jesus is saying truth happens when we see God. It's saying that Jesus is saying that I am truth. That I am the reality of God. Truth is when we see God. When we see God perfectly is when truth enters into the world. John 1. John starts his, his entire book like this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. That Word is Logos. Um, this is God's Word and God's Word is true. And God's Word is God. And He was he, now like it's saying that this word is actually he, he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. So everything, everything that is real that was made was made through the word. And without him, the word, nothing was made that has been made. And in him, the word was life. Everything has its life in him. This is truth. And that life was the light of all mankind. Life, light, truth. And then it goes on in verse 14, and the word became flesh, or the truth became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Truth has lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, is one of truth. It's the one of the reality of God. It's one where there's the full self-disclosure of God in Jesus. That Jesus is reality. That's what we've been talking about in the book of John. Jesus is ultimate reality. When we look at Jesus, we see God. That is the truth. And Jesus says, anyone who sides on the side, who, who sides with truth, sides with me. Because I am truth. Uh, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is claiming that his kingdom is the one that he's bringing and he is the truth. Truth is what happens when we come under the reality of Jesus and become a part of his kingdom. His rule and his reign. That is truth. Truth happens when we use words and deeds to reflect God's wise ordering of the world and so shine a, a light into the dark corners of the world. 
bringing judgment and mercy where it's needed in the world. Truth is when we become a part of this kingdom program and reflect God's truth on the world, God's scriptures on the world, Jesus Christ on the world, that is truth. In the Jewish Bible, we are told what it will look like when God becomes king, when God takes his rightful place and becomes king and truth is established in the world, when God restores his reign over the world and it begins his restoration project, it'll look like this. Now, this slide has a lot of verses in it. And the reason why I kept them in there is so that if you want to get online and download this, you can look them up yourself. Okay, so here it is. Here's, here's um, uh, just a quote by Jonathan Pennington in his great book called Reading the Gospels Wisely. He says this. What is the hope in the restoration of God's reign? Isaiah describes it with a full artist's palette of vibrant colors. It is comfort and tenderness from God. The presence of God himself. Help for the poor and needy. The renewing of all things. The judgment of God's enemies the healing of blindness and deafness, the forgiving of sins, and the making of a covenant. All of this will be accomplished through God's anointed, humble servant and witnesses. What was promised and what has been promised is that when this king comes in, when God's kingdom comes in, restoration will happen. Truth will happen. And this is the truth that Jesus is bringing into the world. This is what Jesus is telling Pilate. My kingdom is of truth. And what I'm bringing in is God's full restoration project. And Pilate responds critically and cynically and doesn't even wait for an answer because he doesn't really believe there is an answer. He looks at Jesus, he says, what is truth? He doesn't go, what is truth? I'd love you to tell me what truth is. He goes, what is truth? And he walks away. Because he doesn't think there's a real answer. It's like, what is truth, really? Retorted Pilate, verse 38. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, Listen, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. Now what's fascinating here is Pilate talks with Jesus, then goes back outside and says, I've talked with him. I find no reason to kill him. I really think we should let him go. But he tries to, that mob mentality, he tries to ease the crowd into it. He's like, okay, listen, it's part of your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover, guys. Like a scapegoat, if you will. Do you want me to release? And he calls Jesus the king of the Jews. He's talking with Jesus and he realizes this is, not, this, this is the king. This, this is, this either in a mocking way, this is the king of the Jews, or in a, in a way, and we don't really know until the end, or in a way he's starting to believe this is the king of the Jews. And they shout back, no, we, not him. Give us Barabbas. Give us stinky, smelly Barabbas. <laughs> now Barabbas had been a part of an uprising, meaning that Barabbas has, is like a terrorist. Barabbas is a huge threat to not just Rome, but Israel. Barabbas can get the whole crowd stirred up against Rome and get all these people killed. And they're like, no, give us that guy. The gospel is tragedy. The gospel is tragedy. The verdict of Pilate is that Jesus is innocent and there's really no reason for Jesus to die. He even gives the crowd an out. I can release one prisoner back to you. And I think you should, I should release your king. And they scream for Barabbas. Jesus is no real genuine threat to Rome, but Barabbas is a threat. He's a proven, known, convicted criminal and terrorist with tendencies toward violence. And Jesus is innocent and will not fight and tells people to put down the sword. But they yell, and Barabbas goes free, and Jesus isn't. The tragedy is that you think Pilate has real power here, but he doesn't. And he tries to free Jesus twice, and he can't. 
Verse 1 in chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Flogging would have been a pretty intense. A lot of people who were going to the cross that were flogged beforehand didn't even make it to the cross. They died during the flogging. This whipping with a really horrible, torturous device with glass and bone at the end designed to rip away flesh with every lash. And their, their entrails would be exposed, their bones would be exposed. And a lot of them just died there on the spot, just died right there and gave way. Jesus, uh, Pilate had him flogged. And the soldiers got into it and they started mocking Jesus. Oh, he's the king of the Jews. And they twisted together this, this crown of thorns, which would have pierced it into a skull. And they placed it on his head. And they put a purple robe around him. And they said something that was only reserved for Caesar. Hail, king of the Jews. That was, res- that was reserved. Hail, king of Rome was reserved for king of the world, son of God, was all reserved for Caesar. And they're bowing down to Jesus and saying, hail, king of the Jews. And then they slapped him in the face. And once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I am bringing him out to you and let you know that I find no basis for charge against him. After the flogging, after the mockery, they say, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate brings him out, this is the king of the Jews. This bloodied, beaten, Not a crown of jewels, but one of thorns pierced into his brow, his blood-soaked robe, vulnerable to the attack of his subjects that are bowing down to him. They bow down to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they get up and then they slap him. And when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to him, said to them, Here is the man. This is a very famous saying of Pilate. Here is the man. This is supposed to invoke sympathy for Jesus' pathetic state. Here is Jesus, his body ripped open, him wearing a, like a pseudo crown of thorns, which remind us of Genesis chapter 3, the curse of the ground is thorns, and he's wearing it upon his head. And he's wearing a purple robe, and then Pilate looks at him, and he says, here is the man. Here is a, just a man. He's not a king. He's not a threat. He is a weak Beaten and powerless human. He is a man. Will you let him go now? Can we all just let him go now? Here is the man has echoes of, echoes of John 1. This God becoming fully flesh. Here is the man. The Logos made flesh. This actually has echoes of Genesis chapter 1 as well. The man. Just a man. And the reason why it has echoes of Genesis 1 and John 1. Because what's happening here is new creation. That Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the man. And then they yell crucify loudly. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted crucify, crucify. And now Pilate is angry at them. Pilate's mad. He says this in verse 6. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted crucify, crucify. But Pilate said, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I have no basis for charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now notice, as soon as they say he claimed to be the son of God, Pilate kind of rears back and says, whoa, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He's like, whoa, wait, what did I just do? He went back inside the palace. He went back inside because, and this is pretty interesting, there was a world, theirs was a world, where the idea that, that in some way the gods could appear in their world was a thing. Like the gods could actually appear in their world. 
And so Pilate, when he heard that he was the son of God, he had actually had a worldview, a framework, that believed that gods could enter into our world in some way. And so Pilate's going, did I just torture like a, a demigod? Did I just torture a divine man? Verse 9, where do you come from, Pilate asked him. Not like, where, do, where were you born? He's asking a way deeper question than that. He's saying, are you a divine man? And Jesus doesn't answer Pilate. Jesus just stays quiet. He doesn't answer him. Are you really from above, Pilate is asking. Did I just torture someone who is from heaven? Like, what's really going on here? Jesus doesn't answer. So Pilate gets angry. He says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Now the conversation circles around real power. I have the power. Pilate is like boasting. I have the power to crucify you right now or to set you free. You better start talking to me. You think you, think you have power? You might be from above, but I have. Your life lays in my hands now. You're in my house now. I rule over this province now. You have no power. I have the power of Rome behind me. You don't want to mess with me. Answer me. And then Jesus did answer him. He said, you would have no power over me if we're not given to you from above. Jesus stands there, completely beaten. You, have no, you actually have no real power. And the only power that you do have is given to you by God. God's actually orchestrating this thing, not you. God is in control of this whole thing. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And it says from then on, Jesus tried to set Jesus, or Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And if Pilate opposed Caesar, Pilate would be dead. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And it was, about, it was the day of preparation, about noon. And he says, here is your king. And Pilate said that to the Jews. They shouted, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? This is probably one of the saddest sentences in all of John. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. We have no king but Caesar. And finally, Pilate said, crucify him. The gospel is tragedy because everyone here lost. Rome has no real power. Pilate tried to free Jesus three different times. And even once said he had, he had the power to let him go, but it wasn't true. Pilate had no real power in this at all. Pilate thinks he has power, but he doesn't have power. The Jews lost. When they asked God for a king, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, they asked God for a king. And Samuel's a prophet at the time. And they go to Samuel, who represents God to, to Israel, and they're like, Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel goes before God and goes, God, they want a king. Can you believe this? I'm so mad at them. I can't believe that they would refuse you to be their king. And they want a king. And it says they want a king like other nations have a king. And God says, let them have their king. The dream and the vocation of Israel was always no king but God. Even the kings knew this. Israel's king, to be a true king, their real true king was God. Instead, the leaders cry out here in front of Jesus, we have no king except Caesar. That is a, if you've studied from 1 Samuel on, that is a horrible sentence. They've rejected God as king. They've rejected Jesus, God's Messiah. 
And now they're, they're saying, we want no one to rule over us but Caesar. See, the greatest religion in the world that the world had ever known and the finest system of justice the world had ever known came together to put Jesus on the cross. And the betrayal and denial of friends makes it worse. Jesus was betrayed by his friends. And the mocking soldiers and the angry mob deepens the agony. The gospel is tragic. What's happening here is tragic. It's a breakdown of humanity, everything. It exposes all of our prejudices, all of our religion or lack of it, how we are all vulnerable to what people think more than the truth, how we were, if we were there, the gospel strips us bare and exposes how we're just like everyone else, no matter how religious we think we are. We're fighting and we're clawing to get ahead, eager to, to take out anger on someone, anyone, to blame, to scapegoat. The gospel is bad news before the gospel is good news. It's the news that if we were there, we would either be part of that angry mob, every single one of us, or worse, we would be those heavy-handed, fisted Roman guards beating Jesus. We would be mocking or we would be yelling for execution. There is no one righteous, no, not one. The story is tragic. Everyone seems powerless here. But the gospel is comedy. The gospel is comedy. It is comedy because the way John is telling the whole story, it is completely ironic. It's not ha-ha funny. It's not that ha-ha funny. It's the cross. It's not supposed to be funny. But it is supposed to be ironic. It's brilliant. My favorite part, and we end it here. My favorite part is this in John 19, 19. It says that Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And so the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priest of the Jews protested Pilate and said, do not write King of the Jews. Could you add just a little, like one of those little comment things, a little carrots and say, he claimed to be? Just right in front, if you could just do that. He claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I've written what I've written. This was meant to be mockery. Here's your king, Jews. This is the king of the Jews right here. But John is saying, this is true. This is the king of the Jews. And because he's the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world. Look at him. Everyone, look at this crowned king who still is wearing a crown of thorns around his head. Look at him as he's lifted up and enthroned on a cross. This is our king. You've done it mockingly, but he is truly the king. You kept calling him a king in mockery, but he, the ironic thing is, is that he was actually truly the king. And this is what John is saying. Remember this. John said this in John, or Jesus said this in John 12. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world be, will be driven out. Jesus will drive out the prince of this world. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, John writes, to show the kind of death he was going to die. This, the cross, is Jesus' crowning moment. He's wearing the crown of thorns. He's wearing the curse of the world. And he's not being killed as much as he's being lifted up as king. He is being killed in one sense. But John is writing it. He's actually being installed as king of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, A king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. And, he's, and it's true. It is a strange kingdom. It is a kingdom where shame is transformed into glory, 
foolishness into wisdom, humiliation into exaltation. The cross becomes the throne from which Jesus rules the world. The gospel is comedy because the only one in this whole story with real power is God. The Jews don't have power. Rome doesn't have power. God is the only one with power. It's not the Jews' fault. It's not Rome's fault. God was installing his king. God was installing his king, and he was doing it laughingly. You think you're, you're killing the Messiah. You think you are, but I'm actually installing the king of the world right now. And no one sees it coming. It's the human kingdom at its worst, but God will see to it that it's his finest moment. This right here is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire? How do the nations conspire? You have Rome, you have Israel, and the peoples plot and kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together, they do, against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, that's what that means, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in, the, in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. You think you're crushing him. You think you're winning. You think that the power of Israel and the power of Rome are coming together to crush the Lord's anointed. And I sit back and laugh. No, I'm installing my king. This is my king on a cross. This is my king being enthroned. This is my king wearing a crown. God installs his king, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And if he's king of the Jews, he's king of the world. What's happening on the cross is that the powers that have ruled the world are being overthrown. The powers that have ruled the world and hatred and injustice, power for power's sake is being overthrown. And Jesus' death is the means by which the world is drawn to him. We see the cross and we're drawn to it. We're like, I want that kind of God. I want that sword, sort of Messiah. I want that sort of king that would give his life for me and we're drawn to it. What would be a mockery? What would, be, what would sound like foolishness? We're drawn to it. There's something that draws us to the cross of Christ. And we're drawn to the cross of Christ and therefore we're drawn to the one and true God. The gospel is comedy of grace because Jesus is dying for the very people who are killing him. It's a comedy of grace because Jesus is dying for the very people who are killing him. Frederick Buechner says this in his book, Telling the Truth. He said, is it possible, I wonder, to say that it is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all? Heard as anything else, the gospel is the church's thing, the preacher's thing, the lecturer's thing. Heard as a joke, high and unbidden and ringing with laughter, it can only be God's thing. Gospel is comedy of grace because we have done our worst to God's king and he's taken it. Every ounce of our madness and invites us to come to that cross and lay down all of our weapons of hate. All of our weapons of injustice, all of our weapons of murder and slander and independence and even to lay ourselves down. The gospel is comedy because this kingdom that Jesus brings in through the cross is one that can take the worst and in the end, turn it into triumph. And so you can have the worst thing happen to you in the kingdom of God. Being a part of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. And God can turn it into triumph. 
The kingdom of God is the, the kind of kingdom where, the, where power is made perfect in weakness, where God's grace is sufficient, where a seed falls down and dies and then becomes a huge crop. That's this kingdom. And that's what Jesus is bringing in. And in return, when we give our lives to this kingdom, we get life through his death. And lastly, the gospel is fairy tale because it's too good to be true. The gospel is fairy tale because it's almost, it's almost too good to be true. G.K. Chesterton says this in his book, The Everlasting Man. He says, a mass legend of literature has sprung from this single paradox. That the hands that had made the sun and stars, the logos, were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle in the incarnation. That is beautiful. He writes, upon this paradox, all the literature of our faith was founded. It is something too good to be true, except that it is true. The f- it's... It's a, fa- it's, it's a wild fairy tale, the gospel, that this God whom we've rebelled against, whom cre- who created us to live in, in fellowship and covenant and partnership with him, we've actually rebelled and not lived into our true vocation as humanity. Over and over again we've done this, and God takes on flesh. The one who put the sun and the stars in place became small enough where he couldn't even reach up and touch the heads of the cattle. And to bring us in. This is a fairy tale. And this fairy tale is seen in John when that dirty, stinky, violent old Barabbas, who is a real threat to Rome and to Israel, is set free. That's a fairy tale. That is the making of every fairy tale there is. Stinky, dirty, old Barabbas just comes out and they're like, we want him to be free and we want to condemn beautiful, bloodied, Jesus. We want the innocent to be crucified. We want the guilty to go free. That's a fairy tale. Except that it's true, that it happened. And Barabbas is a picture of that. Again, Beekner says, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is the news that man is a sinner, to use that old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror, What he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. That is the tragedy. But it's also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That is the comedy. And yet, so what? So what if even in his sin, the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and forgiveness because either he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them or just doesn't give a darn. In answer, the gospel, the news of the gospel is that, the extra- is that extraordinary things happen to him just as in fairy tales extraordinary things happen. It is impossible for anyone to leave behind the darkness of the world he carries on his back like a snail. But for God, all things are possible. That is the fairy tale. Altogether, they are true. The gospel is tragic. What happens in John 18 and 19 is tragic. This is the killing of God made flesh. 
Frederick Beekner writes somewhere else where the, the dark side of the Christmas story is that we rebel against God and we would, we will, and the magic of God, the majesty of God is that God becomes small enough to where we can crush his head as a baby with our hands. Or we can crucify him if he gets too big for that. And we've done that. That's the tragedy. The comedy is that God uses that very thing. He uses the rage of the nations and the, hate, the anger and the hatred of our own hearts and he flips it on its head and he goes, that's how my actual kingdom will come into this world and you will be saved. That's the comedy of it. And the fairy tale is that even though we've done that, we're brought in. It's a fairy tale because, yes, our sin on the cross is removed. And our guilt is removed when we look to the cross and we believe in Christ. Meaning, not that we just are like, oh, I'm forgiven and I feel way better about my life. No, that now we get to be true humans in covenant partnership with God, in relationship with God, and get on with the great many things God has to do in the world. We can partner with God at, at last. We can have access to God. We can be in relationship with God at last. That's the fairy tale. That we can be with God and have our life in God. And not just that, but partner with God in bringing this kingdom to bear on the world through our weakness, through our brokenness, through our vulnerabilities, and even when we lose, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. The gospel is tragedy and comedy and fairy tale, all of those things.